I recently saw a cartoon. It was a psychiatrist's office. There was an owl sitting in the psychiatrist's chair, and on the couch was a bird. The psychiatrist says, Mr. Sparrow, what is bothering you? And the sparrow said, I have this constant feeling that somebody is watching me. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we look at God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time of study. Father, we recognize that we would not know truth if it were not for the truth that you have revealed to us in your word. As the psalmist said, it is in your light that we see light, that our true understanding of reality is dependent upon your revelation. And because it is your word, we know that we are, we can trust it and that we are to submit our thinking to it, that we may be rightly oriented to uh, not only your grace and your love, but also to reality, that we may live in a way that will honor and glorify you, that we may learn to relax in the midst of the difficulties and challenges of life, trusting you because we know that uh, our lives are in your hands and that you are directing our paths. Now, Father, as we study today, we pray that you might help us to further understand your word and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us how we should think about things and how we should apply these principles and realities to our everyday everyday life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just a couple of words about the, um, the trip to Kiev. It was a good trip. I managed to come back without catching the uh, flu that's there, which is always good. And fortunately, the uh, brand of flu that's going around over there, the H1N1, is also what was in the flu shot here this year. So I got a flu shot, so hopefully that will uh, continue to uh, protect me from, from getting that. They, were, they closed the schools uh, for two weeks starting last Monday because of the outbreak. At least 50 people in Ukraine had, um, had died uh, as a result of that. Now, last week... I spoke at the Christmas church in Jatomer, which is where Eager is uh, teaching. He's an assistant pastor there. The pastor is now 87 years old, and I don't know what it is. but uh, And he spent, the pastor now spends about six months of the year here with his uh, son in San Bernardino. So that gives them a little, uh, the, the pastors there, a little more freedom to do things. But uh, anyway, we need to continue to pray for him and, and Julia and their ministry Eager teaches about, as a missionary, we support some from this church, and he um, he teaches sometimes six or seven times a week in various different Bible studies, so we need to continue to pray for uh, them and their, their three children. The week before, I spoke at the Word of God Bible Church uh, in, um, in Kiev, and one of the interesting things, just to tell you one one little anecdote about the impact that uh, the ministry of the school and the church has had throughout Ukraine is that one of the former students named Sasha uh, came back. He was in the second class that went through the school. I think he finished in 2003. And he got a job not long after that in Donetsk. Now, for those of you who are geographically challenged as far as Ukraine goes, it is southeastern Ukraine, with two major cities, Donetsk and Lugansk, and, the, and actually those regions are named for them, that have been taken over by these Russian partisans and uh, elements of the Russian army are in there. And back, I guess, in the late 90s, a Bible, uh, I mean, a seminary was uh, 
American Seminary established a campus there. They had several buildings. They had a bit of land. Denver Theological Seminary established his campus, and Sasha got a job working with them. Now that campus has been uh, taken over completely by the elements of the uh, Russian partisan group there, and uh, the li- Jim's trying to figure out what happened to the library, but that's uh, that's one of the things that's gone on there, and that's a direct impact on the church. And there are people like Sasha who continue to go into those two regions, as well as Eager, who was there in early December who are uh, ministering to the believers who were there as well as conducting uh, evangelistic uh, ministries there because the, the situation that those people are facing, which is quite dire, uh, they are quite receptive to hearing the gospel. So there's quite a bit that is going on even in the difficult times of the war that's taking place there. And so the impact of... The Word of God Bible College, as well as the church, is is being felt throughout uh, Ukraine through all of the different graduates that have come out. And uh, Sasha now is going down to an area near Odessa, which is not too far from Crimea. And he is uh, he's working with uh, someone else, and they are uh, planting a church there. So just a little insight into the impact of this ministry that we support over there and uh, the people we support, and it shows that that it truly is having an impact throughout throughout the country. This morning, I want us to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. And in Matthew chapter 19, I want to address two things that are going to come up just in the first couple of chapters. And that has to do with the doctrine of healing as well as God's common grace. Some questions came up due to a couple of comments that uh, Tommy uh, had. Uh, I think it was the first session. I haven't heard the se- second one yet. Uh, I did watch the first uh, first week, but I had to go out and do some grocery shopping uh, last week. And everything over there is a walk. So grocery shopping is not like hopping in your car, running down to the HEB, shopping, you're back home in 15 or 20 minutes. It's walking a mile and a half, doing your shopping, walking a mile and a half back. So you're looking at about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half operation. And it was beginning to snow and the temperature was dropping. So it was like, okay, am I going to wait until 8 o'clock? Or am I going to go now before it gets too miserably cold out there? And I opted for going early. So anyhow, Tommy had made a couple of comments. I got some questions on, so we'll address that a little bit later on in, in the midst of this, uh, in the midst of this message. Now what's happening here is we're going into a new section in Matthew. And that's easy to see as we read the first verse. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. What we'll see is he's transitioning in his ministry to the last period of about five or six months prior to the cross, prior to his arrest, a trial, crucifixion, uh, death, burial, and resurrection. So this is sometime in the uh, mid-fall, probably September or October, and this sets up a new a new direction in the Gospel of Matthew. What we see in terms of the structures from 19.1 through 25.46, we see this last period of his ministry in Jerusalem prior to the arrest and trial. He travels to Jerusalem, and along the way he will increase his comments about the legalism of the Pharisees and his condemnation of their uh, religious teaching. And consequently, they will react more uh, more toward him, and this will culminate, uh, his ministry culminates in his great pronouncement of judgment upon Jerusalem and uh, Israel in the Olivet Discourse in chapters 23 through 25. So this section, Matthew 19, 1 to 25, 46, will be our focus over the next several months. What we see in the basic uh, division of this section is that as the antagonism and hostility increases between Jesus and the religious leaders, Matthew is going to 
weave into this Jesus' continuing instruction to the disciples. He is preparing them now for their future ministry, although he is not talking specifically about the church age yet. He is preparing them for what will come, and we'll see even within this section that, again, he will announce his impending death, and they uh, they just don't believe it. They don't want to believe it. They don't understand it, and they uh, want to argue with him about it. Uh, during this period of Matthew uh, 19 through 20, he addresses the disciples in terms of some uh, some controversies that are going on, and then in Matthew chapter 21 to 22, he reveals the increasing need for divine judgment on apostate Israel. Matthew 19, chapters 19 through 20, uh, focuses on the framework of his travels as Jesus is, is headed south toward Jerusalem and the things that are encountered along the way. And then Matthew 21 to 22 is more related to his instruction uh, in different situations. Then in Matthew 23 to 25, we see in 23 the setup for the Olivet Discourse, and then the Olivet Discourse where he answers the disciples' questions, what is the sign of your coming? And in that, he predicts the judgment that will come upon upon Israel for their apostasy. So this pretty much uh, sets the stage for Jesus' arrest, for his trial, and for his crucifixion. So what we see at the beginning of Matthew uh, 19 in these first two verses is that Jesus is on the road. He leads uh, Galilee in the north. And he travels to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he will stay in that area. He will teach in the temple. There will be further controversies with the Pharisees. And in this uh, first section in chapters 19 through 22, he will challenge the religious leaders teaching on marriage and divorce. And he will also continue private instruction of his disciples. He goes through various uh, confrontations here, and there's three basic controversies that develop in chapters 19 and 20. The first controversy has to do with uh, the Pharise- Pharisees' teaching on uh, uh, marriage and divorce. The second controversy relates to children as children are brought to him for blessing in verses 13 through 15 of this chapter. And then there is the inquiry from the rich young uh, ruler about eternal life in chapters uh, 19, 16 through chapter, chapter 20. And in each of these situations, Jesus has to correct certain misunderstandings on the part of the disciples. And this leads to further dis- discussion and, um, and correction of these misunderstandings. So... This is the setup, and what we read at the beginning of verse 1 is a typical uh, phrase in Matthew as he continues the story. He says, now it came to pass. And as we read it from our perspective, we have a tendency to say this is what immediately follows upon uh, chapter 18. But in comparing this with the Gospel of Luke, it appears that that some other things in Luke uh, uh, intervene between the end of chapter 18 and the end of chapter, I mean, in the beginning of chapter 19. He's not saying immediately these things happen, but that that um, over the shortly thereafter, Jesus made his way uh, to the south, and several things would have taken place along that uh, particular on that particular route. So this phrase that we read, now it came to pass, uh, is really shows Matthew's uh, Hebrew background, and it tells us that we're closing out one section of his gospel and moving to the uh, moving to the next one. His ministry in the north now comes to a final close, and he his uh, last ministry in the south begins. Now, when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are the synoptic Gospels, you don't get the impression that he went to Jerusalem very often. Uh, 
They don't talk about his ministry in the south, but if you compare with the Gospel of John, you will discover that every year Jesus went to Jerusalem as he was supposed to as an adult Jewish male to go to the, um, go celebrate Passover and go to the Feast of Tabernacles. And so some of those sections in John also fit within this. Now I'm not trying to put together a complete chronology on the life of Christ, but that just sort of gives you a little bit of an idea of how these things will, will fit together. So what we learn from this is that following his ministry in the north, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that is teaching the disciples about forgiveness in chapter 18, that he departed from Galilee and he began to move toward the south. Now as we read this, we see that he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the perspective here is a little bit different. It appears that either he moved there, uh, moved south, and then crossed over to the east side of the Jordan, or it's written from the perspective of someone who is writing from the east side of the Jordan. And there's a lot of discussion about that. Here's a map which gives you a little perspective uh, geographically. He's been in the north. Here we have the town of Nazareth. For those who have been to Israel with me, here's uh, uh, Sephorus, which is a Roman town. Later it would become the capital of Galilee. Uh, Nazareth was a very small town. Sephorus was uh, built. There's only about uh, three or four miles between Nazareth and Sephorus, so that was uh, this is probably the area where Joseph worked a lot as a uh, as a con- someone in construction as they were building uh, Sephorus during most of the time that Jesus was was growing up. Uh, this blue area right here is the southern part of the Sea of Galilee, and the green line on this map marks out the route we think Jesus took on this. Uh, trip down to the south. He would have come down to the northern part of Samaria, which allows us to fit this in with with Luke 17.11, which talks about him going into Samaria. He wouldn't have traveled all the way through Samaria, but he would have crossed back towards the Jordan. Here's the Jordan running from the Sea of Gal- Galilee south to the Dead Sea. He crossed back over to this uh, city, Scythopolis, which is better known for most of you uh, who've been to Israel with me as Beit Shan. It was one of the ten cities of the Decapolis, which is a Greek term meaning literally ten cities, Deca for ten and Polis for cities. And the other nine were all on the east side of the Jordan. And this was named for the fact that it was probably originally settled by Scythians who had been serving within the um, Greek army a couple of centuries before as mercenaries and settled here. Scythia is what was the name for Russia uh, in the ancient times. So these were uh, Russians who had come down here and, and settled, and it's quite an extensive archaeological site today. Uh, Beit Shan is actually the old uh, Jewish city, which is uh, on a tell just behind uh, Scythopolis. And it was at Beit Shan that the uh, uh, Philistines hung the decapitated body of Saul and Jonathan after they were killed in uh, at, at the uh, battle there at Mount Gilboa. So Jesus would have followed this green line, which is roughly the highway, where the highway runs today, moving along the Jordan down to the south. He possibly crossed over, but it looks like he, from the description, he probably stayed on the east side until he got down towards Jericho. He may have crossed over. I think the language here can, could go either way. Uh, cross over to Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is where John the Baptist had originally uh, carried out his uh, baptism ministry. And there, uh, there we're told that as he came to this region, great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Now, this is the second to last statement in the Gospel of Matthew about Jesus' healing. And there are a number of these other statements that are made about his healing 
that are general statements related to the healing ministry of our Lord, and we need to stop a little bit and take some time to understand the purpose for his healing ministry. There is so much confusion among Christians today uh, because of the so-called healing movement, the healing revivals, the healing evangelists that came out of the, the aberration. They were really an aberration within the charismatic movement uh, back in the late 40s and and early 50s, it's caused just a tremendous amount of trauma among a lot of Christians as you have people who suffer from debilitating diseases and from, especially during those years, if you think back to the period in the late 40s, early 50s, that was when this country was still going through some of the uh, large polio epidemics. The last major polio epidemic that occurred in this country was centered in Harris County in 1952, and it was in that uh, polio epidemic that my mother contracted polio, and so she was uh, in a wheelchair paralyzed from the waist down uh, all, all of my life, and I never saw her walk until I saw a video a few years ago that my uncle had taken some years, a couple of years before she had polio. And uh, when I was a kid, I, I always prayed, I would pray every night, my nightly prayers, that my mother would be healed. And I had the prayer, the faith of a child. And the reason I say that is because one of the things that happens in this aberration, this false teaching about healing today is the guilt complex that's put on so many people that if you aren't healed, it's because you don't have the right kind of faith. You don't have the faith of a child. And it's all because there's a distortion and a misunderstanding of healing in the scriptures. Healing occurs in the Old Testament a few places, like with Elijah, Elisha, a couple of other examples. It occurs in the ministry of Jesus, and it occurs in the ministry of the apostles. But it was not expected to be something normative in any age or normative even in the church age. And it is a distortion of what we find within the charismatic teaching is a distortion of what the Bible teaches about the role of suffering and the role of adversity in the life of a believer. So we need to take a little bit of time just to understand the role of healing in Scripture. This was in the New Testament in the period of the life of Christ and in the period of the disciples. It was uh, healing was something that was not something they did everywhere. It's not the primary focus of Jesus' ministry. It wasn't the primary focus of the apostles' ministry, but it served as establishing their credentials as having a ministry from God. Second uh, Corinthians 12 tells us that the signs of the apostles included signs and wonders and uh, and healing. It gave evidence of their uh, calling from God, and it functioned in much the same way in Jesus' ministry. Now, as we've gone through Matthew, we've seen some specific instances where Jesus healed, but there are a number of statements that are made related to Jesus just generally healing the masses. And when Jesus healed in these environments, it was not a situation that was predicated upon the faith of the recipient of the of the healing. A person may or may not have faith in Jesus. Uh, sometimes a person was brought to Jesus by someone who had faith, but they did not have faith. Sometimes it had nothing to do with their faith at all, but it was a manifestation of the common grace of God, God's goodness to all mankind without regard to their status as being saved or unsaved. It is God's grace initiating uh its outreach towards the human race. So let's just look at briefly at some of the passages. There's an interesting structure here that I discovered going through this, but let's just hit some of these um, some of these verses. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 4:23, we're told Jesus went about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. Now, Syria is going outside of the land into the land of the Gentiles. But these are general statements that describe the, the, uh, 
outreach of Jesus to a vast number of individuals. It's just a summary that he healed all kinds of people, all kinds of diseases. And, and so as a result of that, as his fame spread, people brought to him those who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, including those who were demon-possessed, uh, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Then in Matthew 8.16, we're told, again, a general statement. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. So there's two categories of people. are those who are afflicted with demon possession and those who had physical illnesses, and Jesus heals all who were sick. There's no condition place. He didn't say those who were sick and had faith in him. It's all who were sick. Matthew 9.35, we read, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, this was in Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. That verse connects back to the uh, summary statement in Matthew 4, where it connects his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom with healing. And that's important when you understand the messianic prophecies that one of the ways you would know and identify the Messiah is that he would come and he would heal diseases. So this is a sign of his uh, messianic stature. Matthew chapter 10, when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And then in Matthew 10, 8, they went out and they healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, uh, raised the dead, cast out demons. Uh, this is Jesus commanded them to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you've received and freely give. Now what we see here is four instances of general gracious ministry to the people in Galilee where, where Jesus or his disciples are healing people. You have What's interesting structurally in Matthew is there are four statements of this general healing ministry prior to the confrontation with the Pharisees in Matthew 12, and then there's going to be four more general statements after Jesus is rejected by the Pharisees. That emphasizes the fact that even in an environment of increasing hostility, you see Jesus' grace in healing the people without regard for their uh, faith in him, and that's, that's not made a condition or issue. Now, of course, the issue of his confrontation with the Pharisees and their rejection of him as Messiah and claiming that he cast out uh, demons and the power of Beelzebul is seen in Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses, uh, well, verses 10 and following. And there are three statements here related to his healing in 1210, 12:15. 12:15 gives us a general, again, a general statement in the midst of that confrontation with, and the lead up to that confrontation with the, with the Pharisees. Great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And then there is the, in verse 22, the healing of the one who is demon-possessed, who is blind and mute. That's the occasion that set off the opposition from the, from the Pharisees. Then we have these additional statements made, Matthew 14, 14, uh, when uh, Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Then in Matthew 15:30 we read great multitudes came to him and having with him the lame the blind the mute the maimed and many others and they laid down them down at Jesus feet and he healed them Matthew 2 the passage we're looking at great multitudes followed him and he healed them and Matthew 21:14 then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them So again and again this is saved. now why does this take place and we must understand that this takes place as a result of establishing his credentials as the Messiah. But it is an outworking of his, of God's common grace. Now common grace is one of several categories of grace that are talked about, uh, summarized by, by theologians. There's common grace, which is for all mankind without regard to their 
uh, soteriological status without regard to whether they are saved or not. This is God sends the rain upon the good and the evil alike. It is God's general revelation of himself reaching out and initiating to all mankind with the nonverbal evidence of his existence. And that's one of the important words that we have learned about grace is that grace is God's initiative towards mankind. As Tommy commented last week, which was a question I had from several people, he made the statement that nobody can respond to God, nobody seeking God. God is uh, unless God seeks you. And that, although Tommy's a little more Calvinistic than I am, that is a true statement is that God is the one who is always initiating grace, and it starts with his common grace, which is related to his general uh, general revelation. We see passages like Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. This is the nonverbal witness of general revelation. There's two categories of revelation that we've seen, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is nonverbal. As we look at the creation, we see the evidence of a creator. We see his fingerprints on everything from the uh, smallest particle in the universe to the greatest uh, macro uh, elements of creation in terms of galaxies and solar systems, etc., Romans 1, 18 and following is another key passage for understanding God's general revelation. It starts with Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God, that is, Paul is developing why God is judging the human race. The wrath of God is the expression of God's uh, justice and condemnation of the human race. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. That means every human being has an internal witness that, that reflects and echoes the external witness. It is manifest in everyone. The most profound, uh, the most profound Atheist, like Christopher Hitchens, knows in the core of his soul, in the bowels of his heart, that God exists. But he is suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. Interestingly enough, if you didn't catch it in the news in the last couple of weeks, he came out with a statement that he, uh, here's one of the most um, vocal critics of Christianity and of theism around as he expresses his atheism, and he made the comment that Christianity may be the only hope for Western civilization to fight off the barbarity of Islam. Interesting comment. So he at least recognizes a practical value to Christianity, even if he doesn't believe that there is a God. And then Paul goes on to say, for since the creation of the world, his, that is God's invisible attributes, his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, are clearly seen. Isn't that interesting? The juxtaposition of invisible with clearly seen. It is, that means that, that it, it, even though it's, his attributes are, are invisible, they lie behind the physical manifestation, man clearly understands that they are there. They are understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's enough of a witness, there's enough evidence in creation itself to hold every human being accountable for the knowledge of God, and so that they cannot say, well, we never heard, we never knew. The scripture says, yes, you did. You saw, you heard, you witnessed creation, and as a result of that, you knew internally, inside your heart, you knew that God existed, but you suppressed it. And that's what's described in verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Now that's how God initiates his grace towards, common grace towards mankind in terms of providing a witness for who he is and of his, of his person and of his grace. That's the foundation of Paul's argument. Now there's another way in which God's common grace is also expressed towards the human race in terms of initiating grace towards salvation and the understanding of the gospel. And this is seen in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Now, there's some fascinating things going on in this passage that I've been studying uh, a little bit recently. Jim and I had some great conversations about this uh, when I was over in, in Ukraine. But the one thing I want to point out from this is that when Jesus is talking to his disciples, this is the conclusion of the Upper Room Discourse, On the night before he goes to the cross, he's going to finish in chapter 16, pray for the disciples and the church in chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, um, and then he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is one of the very last things that he says, and he tells the disciples, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper which is the term parakletos, meaning the helper, the comforter, uh, referring to the Holy Spirit. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. We have to go on to the next phase in God's plan. And then Jesus said, and when he has come, he will do the following. He will convict the world. Notice, he, the, this is the same kind of structure and vocabulary that we have in John 3.16. For God loved what? The world, that is the inhabited world of mankind, those who are unsaved. God demonstrated his love toward us. Paul says in Romans 5.8 that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the term world includes believers and unbelievers. Unlike five-point Calvinism, the term world does not refer, to, it's not hidden coded language that it's the elect in the world. It includes both believers and unbelievers. So the Holy Spirit is sent to convict the world. And of course, this would primarily focus on unbelievers because believers would have already understood this and responded to the gospel. He comes to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is the initiate, the initiative of God's grace. God is seeking all mankind to respond to the gospel. He is, uh, when we res- respond, it is because God has already initiated that outreach. And that is clear from uh, passages such as this. God is sending the, uh, sent the Holy Spirit, and when he came, he would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, the next stage in terms of the expansion and getting narrowing the focus of God's common grace comes from a verse in John chapter 6, Verse 44. Now, in uh, the five points of Calvinism, this is the proof text that they go to for the uh, what is called efficacious grace or irresistible grace. Now, in Calvinism, what that means is that no unbeliever can can come to the Lord uh, unless God specifically draws them, and he will only draw the elect, and it is an irresistible drawing. But this ignores an important aspect of this context, and that is a real problem. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, it's emphasizing the priority of God's grace initiating itself in calling and bringing a person to himself through the cross. But how does he do this? See, in, in, in Calvinism, in efficacious grace, this is not uh, done through a secondary means. It is interpreted to mean that God the Holy Spirit does it. Well, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned in the passage. And so... This is used to say that God will only draw the one who is 
who is elect. So Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, how does the Father draw him? You don't stop at the end of this verse. You have to go to the next verse to understand fully what Jesus is saying here. In John 6:45, we read, it is written in the prophets, and he quotes from Isaiah 44, 18 to 20, and they shall all be taught by God. How will God teach him? If you go look at the context, God teaches through his word. So when you put this together, what we see is the way the Father draws people to himself is through the teaching of his word and the proclamation of the gospel. So what we see is a broad sense of God's common grace where he is giving general revelation of himself to every human being so that they are without excuse. And it is clear to every human being that he exists. Then the focus is is narrowed more in the church age, for God the Holy Spirit has come, and God the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness. And then... Uh, third, we see that there is a specific work of the Holy Spirit in, draw, I think it was the Holy Spirit, drawing people to the cross through the proclamation of the gospel. But there is nothing within this passage that is saying that, that, uh, this applies only to the elect. But it clearly states the initiative of God that is, uh, prior to the response of the of the believer. God is the one who is reaching out into a fallen world. That's John three sixteen. That's John sixteen uh, six and following. So that is clear. God is the one reaching out through through common grace. Now, what do we learn about the healing ministry of Jesus? This again it reflects God's common grace because He is healing. Everyone, without uh, excluding unbelievers. Now, in, in terms of understanding Jesus' ministry, first of all, we must recognize that during the first advent, Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom. He's presenting himself as the Messiah of the Old Testament and that the healings were a sign of his authenticity, of his uh, claimed that uh, uh, giving credibility to his claim that he was the Messiah, and we see these prophecies in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come in Isaiah forty two seven to open blind eyes. The Pharisees thought that this was one of the unique signs of the Messiah that no one else could uh, perform this kind of a miracle to open the eyes of the blind. It's going to be repeated again in Isaiah 35, 5. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison, that is spiritual darkness and spiritual prisoners. In Isaiah 29, 18, on that day, referring to the kingdom, the deaf shall hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. In Isaiah 35, uh, verses 4 through 6, Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, Say to those with an anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. That is, God eventually will vindicate Israel in history when he establishes the kingdom. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then... That is, at the time the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom, the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. So when Jesus comes and heals people from all their uh, sicknesses or diseases, illnesses, blindness, leprosy, all of these things, he's giving his credentials and a preview of coming attractions if they will accept the kingdom. Jeremiah 8.22 says, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people been restored. It would be restored when the kingdom was established. And in Jeremiah 33, 6, Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. This is what would characterize the kingdom. Now, the first thing we ought to see in terms of, of healing in the, Jesus' ministry is that it was never done for the sake of healing. 
He never doesn't heal anyone just to provide that physical benefit. If that was his purpose, he would have gone to the hospitals of the day, the places where they're sick were, and just gone around the villages healing people. But that's not what he did. It, there was discrimination in his healing. I guess that means Jesus can't be politically correct. He only healed in specific circumstances and specific situations. And as we look at this, I'm going to run through some of these uh, fairly quickly so we understand uh, what's going on and why Jesus performed these miracles in context. In Matthew 8:17, we're told that this is a fulfillment of a passage in Isaiah 53, verse 16, and so this foreshadows a messianic fulfillment. In Matthew 9, 6, the healing of the uh, paralyzed man uh, was to demonstrate that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. If he could heal a, par- uh, a paralytic, then he could uh, forgive sins. Matthew 11, 2 through 19, the healings that he refers to there were to confirm his identity to John the Baptist when he was in prison. This is when John says, is the kingdom really going to come? Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus told his followers, go back and tell them of what is happening, that the blind see, the lepers are, are, are cleansed. And so this confirmed his identity. In Matthew 12, 15 through 21, uh, 21. The passage quotes from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, foreshadowing his uh, identity as the Messiah. In John chapter 9, he heals the blind man. Remember, he spits in the ground, takes the mud, puts it on his eyes, and he's healed. It brings sight to the blind. Jesus is demonstrating that he is the one who will bring light to Israel. Uh, only Jesus could heal the blind no one else did. This is a specific sign. John eleven four, he is going to raise uh, Lazarus from the dead, and that's designed to demonstrate the glory of God. In John twenty thirty to thirty one, uh, the healing is to demonstrate the various miraculous evidences that uh, verify uh, Jesus' messianic claims. And then when we get on into uh, Acts. God, we learn from Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 that God the Father was authenticating Jesus' claims through these uh, miracles of healing. Now, we get to see examples of two kinds of things with Jesus, uh, Jesus' healing. The first is that these are situations where the faith of the recipient was not present at the time of healing, and there are numerous examples of that. Uh, we see this in, in the nobleman's son, the healing of the nobleman's son. The nobleman came to Jesus, not the son. So the son is healed, and afterwards he became a believer. The cripple at Bethesda was not a believer, but afterwards he became a believer. So he's not being healed because of his faith. Uh, the demon-possessed man in Capernaum is healed on the Sabbath. He was not a believer. The paralyzed man was healed. His friends had faith and brought him to Jesus. He did not have faith. The centurion's servant. Uh, the centurion had faith, not the servant. And the blind and the mute man in Matthew 12:22 uh, did not have faith either. Uh, the deaf mute, that uh, demon-possessed man in Matthew 9, 32 to 33, was, did not have faith. Uh, the Canaanite woman's daughter. Uh, the mother had faith, not the daughter. The deaf mute in Decapolis uh, had, did not have faith. The demon-possessed boy in Matthew 17, 14 to 18 does not have faith. When Malchus, the temple servant, had his ear chopped off by Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't have faith. Jesus just picked his ear up and put it back on. Um, he didn't have faith. The two blind men healed in Matthew 9 did not expect it. They didn't have faith. Nine of the ten lepers Jesus healed did not respond in faith. Only one did. So we have numerous examples in Scripture where faith was not the condition for healing. But that is what we often hear from these uh, so-called healing evangelists today. Now, there were a number of examples where faith was also present in the recipient. There's uh, the healing of the leper, healing of the crippled hand in Matthew 12, 9 to 13. Uh, the man that's born blind, the healing I mentioned a minute ago in John chapter 9. 
uh, restoring sight to blind Bartimaeus in Matthew 20, uh, the woman with the hemorrhage in Matthew 9, 20 to 22, and one of the ten lepers who responded in faith. These were all, uh, these all had faith and trusted, trusted in Jesus. So what we see when we look at these first two verses in Matthew 19 as we're transitioning into this next section is that Jesus is demonstrating the grace of God, that the grace of God has been initiated to reach out to man, not as a response to man's uh, faith or his positive volition, but to reach into the world of fallen sinners in order to bring them to himself. It is God who is initiating, God who is seeking, God who is reaching out to all mankind. And God does this through various means, through the preaching of, through, through general revelation, through the preaching of His Word, and through the, uh, uh, verbal witness of believers who are giving their, uh, testimony and witnessing to those who were lost. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Now, Father, we thank You for this time to reflect upon Your grace that you are the one who initiates in history to reach out to the lost, to draw us to yourself through various means, through nonverbal general revelation, uh, through the Holy Spirit who is now convicting the world, and through the proclamation and teaching of your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture makes it very clear that all have sinned and fall short of your glory, that we are all born in condemnation for Adam's sin, and we're born spiritually dead. And the only way that that Uh, can be reversed is to trust in Jesus Christ, that he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, but the issue is whether or not we will accept that. It's offered as a free gift. We do nothing to earn it or deserve it. We simply accept it. And the instant that we trust in Christ, the instant we trust in Jesus, a completed death on the cross where he paid the penalty, that that moment we have eternal life that can never be taken from us. We're given his righteousness, we're born again, and we have a new destiny to spend eternity with you. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with the things that we have learned today, trusting in you that even when we go through adversity and difficulties and they involve physical suffering and illness and disease, we know that you are working those things out for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.